Let us now turn, friends, um, to the portion we read, and in particular, um, chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we can take for a reference the words at the beginning of verse 7, 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. <clears throat> Thou art the man. Now, um, this is a very famous story and incident with uh, David's sin um, with Bathsheba and all that is associated with it. One of those well-known stories, and yet we can never be too familiar with it. Now, um, the prophet Nathan, coming to visit David, was sent by God with a specific mission to challenge him for his sin against Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. But as we shall see, there is much more to this story than that. Now, to really appreciate what has been recorded for us here, we must first establish something of a biblical background to this story so that we can see where God was coming from in this challenge. And I would like us to do that by um, establishing in our minds some relevant biblical texts. And the first one I would like to implant in your mind for this purpose is Genesis 2, verse 17. These are words that are very familiar to you. In the days you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. This was God, of course, warning Adam in the Garden of Eden. And it's a warning that implied numerous consequences. We tend to limit this verse to these words, thou shalt surely die. And we have to remember, first of all, that that implied a threefold death. In that uh, incident, and uh, immediately, or at least not long after it, Adam introduced to himself and to the human race a threefold death physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. But that's not all, because that promise from God had embedded in it every instance of pain and suffering and anxiety and disease and cruelty familiar to us in the human story. And all we see in the world going around us today all the violence and all the inhumanity of man to man, it is all embedded in that promise. You will surely die. 
So let's remember that text, Genesis 2.15, as we explore David's sin. The second portion I would like to implant in your minds is not so much a text, but a chapter. And I dare say, a chapter you're not terribly familiar with, because I doubt you read it very often. It's a chapter in the book of Leviticus, and it's in 13. And this is a chapter that consists of 59 verses. It's quite a long chapter when you think about it. Now, the reason that you don't read that chapter very often, and I must confess, neither do I, it's all about leprosy. From beginning to end, 59 verses all about leprosy. Now, why did God give that much print space to that disease? There must be a reason for it. And I would suggest to you that the answer to that question is this. Because of the likeness between leprosy and sin. In fact, that chapter, Leviticus 13, is actually a parable to us on the subject of sin. A parable on the destructive nature of sin. A parable on the contagious nature of sin. Always remember, sin is a contagious thing. And finally, a parable on the incurable nature of sin. That's what leprosy was in those days. It was incurable. So that's the second portion of scripture I would like to embed in your mind in order to understand what's going on here. The third is Isaiah 53, verse 6, a verse which you are very familiar with. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's where the world finds its hope. In the way that God took care of human sin. The sin of men, the sin of women, the sin of boys, and the sin of girls. Paul was even more adamant and blunt about this. He wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the last verse in that chapter, he hath made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's a hard text to understand. Isn't it? <clears throat> he hath made him to be sin. In fact, it's so hard to understand that the translators of the Gallic Bible, to those of you who are familiar with the Gallic language, they struggled with this. So they decided to take a detour round these words. And those of you who are familiar with the Gallic Bible, you will know that this verse reads, He was made a sin offering. Not sin, but a sin offering. Now, as it turns out in, in, in history, this controversy 
uh, erupted first of all with Martin Luther because they had the same controversy when they began translating the Bible and others wanted to do what the translators of the Gallic Bible did and use sin offering. But Martin Luther was adamant. He said, no, the word used here is not for sin offering. It's the word sin. So let's take that with us into our study this evening. The last one I want to implant in your mind, Matthew 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're familiar with these words, but always remember, these were the first words to come out of our Lord's mouth in his public ministry on this earth. For 30 years he remained virtually silent as far as the public were concerned apart from the few words he spoke when he was a 12 year old boy. But when he began speaking publicly the very first word out of his mouth repent. And it brings home to us how serious Jesus considered the matter of sin to be in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. Now let's try and take these texts with us and the information in them to consider this infamous uh, incident in the life of David and his repentance and the events leading up to it of huge importance and significance and benefit to anyone concerned about their own sin. Because if this great man fell into gross sin, so can you, and so can I. Well, the first matter we want to learn here then, and don't misunderstand me what I'm, what I'm going to say here. Behind every willful sin, there's a story. Now, I'm underlining the word willful, <coughs> and I'm doing that because we sin constantly. As our catechism reminds us, in thought, in word, and in deed. In fact, we are veritable factories of sin. Some of them far more offensive than others, some inoffensive. They are all, all offensive to God. But when we sin with our will, when we deliberately sin, that's a different matter altogether. And let me assure you, each time you sin willfully, there's a story behind it, a story of some sorts, and we will see that in David's life here. So I want to look at three steps in the story of David's sin. Step number one. Now, as I go through them, you must try and apply this to yourself. If necessary, 
as my old minister, some of you may remember well, the Reverend, late Reverend Wardo Alec MacLeod used to say in the pulpit in Stornoway, if the cap fits, wear it. Step number one, neglect of duty. Now you may think, well, that's not much of a sin, isn't it? Neglect of duty. We read in chapter 11, verse 1, at the time when kings go forth to battle. Now, the children of Israel were constantly involved in battles and wars of one type or another. Enemies were all around them constantly, and it's very seldom we read that Israel was now at peace. And given the news coming from the Middle East these days, not much has changed. But meanwhile, here's David, and he sends Joab, his lieutenant, to lead the charge for Israel in this particular war. But David was the king. And he was supposed to be the great king. Didn't they sing his praises? Didn't they say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands? Where is he here? As Job leads his army into battle for Israel, where's the commander-in-chief? Wasn't it his duty to be a leader and an example to them? Yet, look at what we read in verse 1. David tarried still at Jerusalem. It's a true saying, my friends. The devil finds work for idle hands. But it is equally true that Satan always takes advantage. Always takes advantage if believers aren't where God has commanded them to be. <clears throat> Did you notice this was one this was the first question actually that God asked man in his sin when he came down into the Garden of Eden? What did he say to Adam? Where art thou? Where are you, Adam? In other words, why aren't you where I have commanded you to be? Take care, my friends, that you don't neglect your legitimate duties before God. You have many duties, as I have many duties. You have duties to this church, not least being present in the means of grace whenever you can. You have duties to your wife or your husband. You have duties to your families, to your children, to your community. God has given you many, many duties. Don't neglect any of them. Because if you do, it may become a step to your backsliding. Step number two. David allows himself to have a lustful eye. Verse 2 of the previous chapter. He saw a woman washing herself and she was very beautiful to look upon. My friends, the sins that enter our heart through the eye 
are legion. They are legion in number. And that's why that great man of old, John Bunyan, wrote about I gate. I gate. It's a gate that if opened carelessly, it can be fatal to spiritual health. This very man, David, he later begged God in Psalm 119, O oh, turn away mine eyes from viewing vanity. Help me to be disciplined over eye-gate. Here's how the tragic story of sin began. Eve, carelessly opening eye-gate to the forbidden fruit. In Genesis 3 we read, The woman saw, she saw, that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. And by the way, it's this weakness in Eyegate that the entire advertising industry is based upon and plays on in a thousand and one ways in this modern world. There are few objects, my friends, few objects being marketed today that the world doesn't use a knee-like figure to draw gullible customers <coughs> in. So I get, my friends, continues to be a problem for us as it was a problem for David and as it was a problem for him. Watch out for it in your own life. Have a disciplined eye in your walk in this world. Turn away mine eyes from viewing vanity. And if we don't, and if you don't, I get will ensnare you. Let me look at step three. David broke his marriage vows. He broke his marriage vows. And he did so, first of all, before Bathsheba came anywhere near his house. He allowed his eye to linger on Bathsheba washing herself. Isn't this what Jesus warned us about? Isn't this perhaps what Jesus was thinking about when he gave this warning on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? Listen to these words. Whoever looks, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already and i would suggest to you that jesus was thinking about david in this instance and despite how matters worked out for david and bathsheba as man and wife this this was nothing but vulgar lust verse 4 he took her and she came in unto him and he lay with her so his sin went from the eye to the thought, to the deed. And David's backsliding. Um, this is, as you know, if you're a regular church court, this is a hugely instructive part of the Bible in every generation, to all ages. But this goes all the way back to New Testament writers. 
Not only do I believe that Jesus had this in mind in the Sermon on the Mount in that instance that I referred you to, but I also believe that James had this in mind. Listen to these words, James 1 verse 15. When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Isn't that a reflection of what's going on here? Now, something else worth noting here. One willful sin will always produce another, will always be followed by another willful sin. So what began with neglect of duty for this man would end in murder and even in the death of his own child. So this tragic story adds blood to blood. Uriah wasn't the only victim of David's scheming and evil plan. If you look at verse 17, there fell some of the people of the servants of David. Have you noticed that? There fell some of the people of the servants of David. In other words, an unknown number of soldiers died when Joab put David's plan into action. And a no number of soldiers. Yet David was so deceived in himself, he saw nothing wrong with his evil plan. He carried on as normal. Verse 27, When the morning, that is the morning for Uriah, when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife. You know, my friends, I want to weep when I read this. I just want to weep. And what makes this particularly heartbreaking, it's all done by a man that God described in this way, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, a man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. Now, my friends, this is where it becomes challenging. If David could do this, a man after God's own heart, what am I capable of? What are you capable of? This is a challenging story, my friends. A challenging story. David deceived himself, but he didn't deceive God. That all-seeing eye that we were reading about or singing about earlier on saw every thought, every word, and every action. No wonder, no wonder he begged in his famous psalm, O Lord, thou hast me searched and known. It's as if he was saying, I know I tried to hide it from you, but I couldn't. Neither can you. You can hide nothing from that all-seeing eye. So we read in verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let that, my friends, be a lesson and a challenge to all of us. 
Now, let's consider the aftermath of this. But, but by the way, willful sin, this is in the economy of biblical revelation and in the economy of the gospel. Willful sin is a scaled thing in the eyes of God. A scale, let's assume, from one to ten. David, in this instance, he was up at nine and ten. You may be down at one or two, but it's the same scale. It's the same scale. And every willful sin recorded on that scale goes into the scales of divine justice. Keep that in mind. Let's look at the aftermath. David, David being assessed on these scales. Now, I don't know how long he was in this back prison state for. It's been suggested that it was a minimum of a year. The child is uh, somewhat grown. Perhaps he was backslidden for much longer than that. I'm not very sure. Whatever the case, God saw this man, great as he was, he had no intention of repenting. So God inspired Nathan to go and see David and deliver this famous parable in chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. Now, there's no question in my mind that the rich and the poor individuals uh, in the parable, they represent David and Uriah. And God cleverly wove into the parable the mindset of David in this instance. Now remember again God's description of David's heart and mind. A man after my own heart which shall fulfill all my will. The moment his eye fell on Bathsheba, he lost that mind. He lost that mind. And instead of delighting in God as he used to do, he's now wallowing in the corruption of his own lustful heart. Now, meanwhile, on hearing the injustice of the rich man in the parable, the man who stole the poor man's lamb, the message initially went over David's head. He couldn't see that this was spoken to him and about him. He couldn't see the obvious application to himself. Instead, self-righteousness and wrath erupted in his heart and in his mind. Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And notice how far off kilter the moral barometer of even a Christian person can be. David didn't see anything wrong with adultery and with murder, but he is furious at a stolen lamb. How far off can the moral barometer of even a believer be? And the same merciless spirit that sent Uriah to his death burst again out of David's heart. Verse 5 again. The man that hath done this shall surely die. And to add to his sin and to his condemnation and to his misery, he even blasphemes. He invokes God's name. He took the Lord's name in vain. As the Lord liveth. 
No wonder I want to weep, don't you? And then as further evidence of his perverted sense of justice, he demands that this man, verse 6, restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David saw clearly the cruelty and the greed and the callousness of the rich man in the parable. Yet, what he did himself, he had buried so deep in his mind that he had forgotten all about it. You can do that. And so can I. We can bury our misdemeanors so deep within us that we never give them a thought. Can you relate to that, my friends? Again, didn't Jesus warn us of this very problem? Seeing sin, shortcomings, and backsliding in others, but never in ourselves. Matthew 7, verse 3. Why beholdest thou the mote or speck in thy brother's eye, but not the beam or the plank in your own eye? Can you relate to this? Isn't it true that our eye is far sharper when we are observing others than it is when we are observing ourselves? That's why the old divines used to urge, for every look you give others, take three looks into your own heart, mind and life. Well, here Nathan didn't leave David not a second in his perverted self-righteousness. And I can see him pointing his finger Thou art the man. Forget the parable. You're the man. And I believe that these words were as an arrow from heaven. They penetrated through to the marrow of this great man of God, Baxlin. Penetrated through to the marrow. This is a classic case of be sure your sin will find you out. When Nathan finished, David cried, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. He sinned against his wife. He sinned against his family. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the soldiers that died. But cruel and nasty as these acts were, here's David's greatest burden now. I have sinned against the Lord. Again, I would suggest to you that Jesus was thinking about this when he compiled that wonderful parable of the prodigal son. 
Isn't this what he said? The prodigal, when he was brought back to his father in repentance. Listen to these wonderful words. Luke 15. You know them well. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Now remember that distinction, my friends. It's crucial. I have sinned against heaven and before thee. The greater burden was the sin against God. Words of true repentance when we see that our sin is against God. Now immediately after this, even though Nathan assured David of God's forgiveness, immediately after this, David went out and wrote Psalm 51, which we were singing a moment ago. And he included in that verse, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. And we can never, my friends, never truly repent of our sins until we see this dimension of our sin. Whoever else we hurt and offend is the sin against God that should be the greater burden in our lives. This is where the greatest damage is done and this is where we have to repair that damage and we begin by through evangelical repentance. Now I want you to notice what happened immediately David repented. Verse 13 The Lord also hath put away thy sin thou shalt not die. In other words without hesitation on repentance God immediately forgive immediately forgive and that will apply to you and to me whenever we truly repent of our sins God will immediately forgive us now sadly of course we know that there were serious consequences to this sin especially regarding the child I'm not going to go into that detail but suffice it to say, as we read, that the child died. Now, what we should learn from this is that serious consequences always follow willful sin to some degree or other. And that's why the deaths of so many people regarding the story, Uriah, the soldiers and the child, they found a place in that psalm, the psalm of penitence. David doesn't mention Bathsheba. David doesn't mention adultery. But he mentions the death of those people. Free me from blood guiltiness. Free me from blood guiltiness. And I interpret that in this way. 
commandment number six comes before commandment number seven. Thou shalt not kill. There is nothing more precious in the eyes of God than the life he has put into the creatures he created in his own image. And that was obviously the great burden of David here. Despite all of that, and this cry to free him from blood guiltiness, he's now a forgiven man. His heavenly father has wiped the slate clean. In other words, there is no sin now to be marked against David. Um, we're going to sing in a concluding praise in Psalm 130. And the Psalm written by David, by the way. And he, he raises this question. If thou were to mark iniquity, who would stand? Who would stand? And I think he was reflecting upon this. He knows deep down this sin or these sins are no longer marked against him. He's forgiven. He's been pardoned. He's been cleansed. He's been restored to fellowship with God. That, my friends, as you gather here this evening, should be the greatest desire in your own heart. That when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, that there will be no sin marked against you because of your faith in the one who was made sin for you. And he was marked. The moment he was struck upon that cross, he was marked for the sins of his people. It's as if God had put us target on his chest and spoke those famous words awake O sword against my fellow the one that is my companion and the sword did awake the sword that had lain dormant since the garden of Eden you remember the sword that blocked and barred the way to the tree of life the sword was dormant, but when the command came, Awake, O sword! That sword, my friends, fell from heaven and hit that target hanging on the cross of Calvary. So that we who believe in Jesus here this evening, we can say with confidence, God will not mark sin against me because he marked it against him on that cursed cross of Calvary. Do you have that confidence in your own life, my friend? I know so few of you. I know some of you, and I'm confident you do have this assurance. But how many more present here this evening don't have that assurance? Oh, pray, my friends, and keep on praying until God persuades you there's no sin going to be marked against you 
at the judgment seat of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Amen. Lord, we thank thee for thy loving kindness, for thy mercy, for thy patience, for thy tolerance, for the assurance given to creatures like ourselves that God refuses to mark our sin against us. Blessed be thy name for the one that bore those sins to the cross of Calvary, the one upon whom the sword fell, the one that poured out his soul into death, that we might find life in him, the risen, exalted, glorified Saviour. Bless us, Lord, and help us to think seriously about these matters. And if there are those present here this evening who are seeking that assurance and that salvation for themselves, do help them, Lord. Help them by thy spirit and grace that they might find that peace that passes all understanding. Amen. Amen. Let's sing then, friends, in Psalm 130. <clears throat> Lord, from the depths to thee I cried, my voice, Lord, do thou hear. Unto my supplications voice give an attentive ear. Lord, who shall stand if thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquity? But yet with thee forgiveness is that fear thou mayest be. We'll sing the whole psalm to God's praise. <clears throat>
congregation's friends, who, God willing, the prayer meeting on Thursday will be at the usual time, 7.30, and will be taken by Mr. Derek McLean. The services next Sabbath, uh, 12th November, will be taken by Reverend Kenneth MacDonald, retired. And uh, prior notice of meeting arranged for Thursday, 16th November. This is your congregational uh, meeting. Mr. McLean, the inter-moderator, will meet with the congregation the 16th at 7.30. And this meeting is for the people in the congregation to give their views regarding the vacancy and hopefully agree on a way forward. And there's one more intimation. A day of humiliation and prayer, and I assume that's a presbytery thing, a day of humiliation and prayer, Please remember the joint prayer meeting in, in Bewley at 7pm on Saturday, 11th November. These are all the notices. Let's stand to receive the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. 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 <coughs>